0: Welcome to another episode of Weekends. I am your host, Nando Vila. It is Memorial Day, so my regular co-host, Anna Kasparian, is off today, which means producer Kale Brooks, you got Stuck your big me. shot. Yeah. Well, it's, this is your big opportunity, you know? You're stepping in front of the camera, uh, you know, see your beautiful face. But, I mean, I, all I gotta say is just don't don't fuck it up, dude. This is your big shot. Yeah, Do not miss you... your chance to blow. This opportunity <laughs> comes once in a lifetime, you know?
1: Just... I'm, I'm totally fine right now. It's going to work out. <laughs> I have good takes. It's, it's okay. Yeah.
0: Well, we got a great show for you guys today. We're going to talk about wokeness and how we love it. And we're going to talk about Chile with Rene Rojas because it's pretty remarkable what's going on there right now. Um, I think you can safely say maybe it's the end of an era in Chile um, or maybe the beginning of the end of an era, if that makes sense.
1: It's kind of the, I mean, there are two topics are, are just so kind of splits of, uh, this, this moment in, in neoliberalism of like, on the one hand, uh, just like kind of what liberalism has become in America and, and, in a lot of the world. Um, and just like kind of how, like how far the left is from kind of being at the heart of like our zeitgeist right now. Mm. Uh, that it's just redounded into, like, just the dumbest shit. <laughs> like, um, But as as we were saying, you know, and we'll get to, you know, it, it hits everyone, you know. So it's not just, you know, we have to deal with wokeness, but so does the ruling class. So do all yeah. of their minions up at top. Um, but then in Chile, it's, like, the exact opposite, where, like, there's this, like, inkling of, like, what a better future could be. And it's so, it's still very far from it, but like, God, it's just, it's night and day with like where the U S is and where so much of the left is right now globally.
0: No, absolutely. And, um, you know, in order to capture the left zeitgeist, you need to read books, specifically Verso's books. That's right. You know what time it is. It's time for the Verso ad read, baby. You can join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one or more books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members will also get 50% off everything on the website, including the Verso Comrade tote bag for as long as you are a subscriber. Each member tier is 50% off for your first three months. The Comrade tier is only $20 a month, and if you join in May, you'll get these four books – the Last Man Takes LSD, Foucault, and The End of Revolution by Mitchell Dean and Daniel Zamora. I saw that Corey Robin was tweeting about that book today. And I was like, huh, I know that one, from the Verso ad read. White Skin, Black Fuel on the Danger of Fossil Fuel Fascism, or Fossil Fascism by Andreas Malm and the Zetkin Collective. Neither Vertical Nor Horizontal, A Theory of Political Organization by Rodrigo Nunes and Edward Said, His Thought as a Novel by Dominique Edé. Yeah, Kale.
1: Yeah, read them. Re- read those read books. Them. Those are good books. First, good. How many books, books do
0: you read a uh, uh, a month? A month? Um,
1: uh, I've been I've been trying to get on a regiment of like a book a week, and sometimes I slip. Uh, in fact, very often I slip, and then and then I'll make <laughs> up with it in other weeks. But mm. um, I do probably end up reading. I, I do end up reading a lot of. Um, uh, verso books that uh, just nice it, I mean it is like it's it's you know they do have some of the like kind of the quintessential not just of like this moment uh you know like how to understand our moment politically from like from like really intelligent people on the left, but uh they have a good back catalog too, so just
0: yeah, shouting I them think out. I'm reading one of their I think I'm reading one of their back catalogs right now. I'm reading a biography of John Reed, the American journalist uh who went to cover the October Revolution in nineteen seventeen mm-hmm. um, they made a movie about him called Reds starring well written written starring and directed by Warren Beatty, which good is movie. very good highly recommend it um and I'm reading about his life he was an interesting guy he went to the Mexican Revolution he saw two revolutions Mexican Revolution and Russian Revolution um and I was like how many of us get to see one revolution he got to see two yeah
1: it's just i mean i've been I've been reading a lot of um I mean, I've been reading a bunch of different things, but some of it, uh, I've been reading some, you know, some people from back then I was reading some Rosa Luxemburg the other day because some DSA meeting wants me to. Um, but, uh, it's just like, it is really fascinating because it's, it's like a hundred years ago. Like there's people who are alive today, you know, who are a hundred years old, you know, it's really not that far off. And yet like it was like the stakes of what they were doing were so much more like monumental. I mean but just like it took decades of the left to build power, but like the situations they were in, you know, it's it's like hard to fathom given our situation right now. Well they
0: had a chance of taking power. Right. They were actually like considering what to do with it, you know, once they took it. That's that was the debate at the time. Now we're just like, man, I wonder what that would be like. Um but yeah. Um I just love the idea of a DSA meeting and be like Kale needs to read this book. Kale needs to read this book. They're just like you know, begging you to read a book, and you're like, "Fine, I'll read it for you guys and explain it back to you."
1: It's like um, it's like the the Simpsons meme where the whole class is like, "Bart, say the word," and yeah, us just read the read the Luxembourg and wrap.
0: Um, well, what do you think? Should I do my decode? Let's let's decode it up. All righty. Well, this week we got some breaking news, because we learned that Lockheed Martin, the largest weapons manufacturer in the world, is woke. That's right. It turns out that Lockheed Martin has been implementing a program which sent white male executives to a three-day diversity training program aimed at deconstructing their white male culture and encouraging them to atone for their white male privilege. Now, the details of this are incredibly funny, but before we get into it, it's worth understanding What exactly Lockheed Martin is
1: Lockheed Martin is the top
0: grossing defense firm in the world, and the U.S. government supports that business to the tune of over thirty seven point seven billion dollars. It
1: surpasses its closest competitors, Boeing and Raytheon by nearly 20 billion in arms sales. These funds are granted by Congress to provide equipment that enables the U.S. military to protect the country at home and abroad.
0: So, yeah, Lockheed Martin are literally merchants of death, specifically the biggest merchants of deaths in the world. And their latest uh, killing technology, lasers. At Lockheed Martin, we know combat aircraft. We know how to integrate and manufacture tactical pods that perform in harsh environments. And when it comes to laser weapon systems, we're proving ourselves in the lab and in the field from detect to defeat all the way down the kill chain. So when our customers are ready to roll, we're right there with them. From detect to defeat all the way down the kill chain, baby, you love... To see it. So yeah, Lockheed Martin get rich off of selling weapons to the American empire and its client states in order to murder people around the world. And I don't have to remind you that the vast majority of the victims of the American empire are black and brown. But at least there will be no man spreading at the office. So let's look at some of these uh, details uh, of this cultural revolution within Lockheed Martin. The seminars were led by something called White Men as Full Diversity Partners, which have been doing these things since 1997. The program included, quote, a former three-star general and the vice president of of production for the $1.7 trillion F-35 fighter jet program. Ugh, that's just, that's the funniest thing I've ever heard. Um, and to begin, the diversity trainers led a free association exercise asking the Lockheed employees to list connotations for the term white man. The trainers wrote down old, racist, privileged, anti-women, angry, Aryan Nation, KKK, Founding Fathers, guns, guilty, and my personal favorite, can't jump. Now, it continues. White Men as Full Diversity Partners argues that the roots of white male culture include traits as such as rugged individualism, a can-do attitude, hard work, operating from principles, and striving towards success, which are, quote, devastating to women and minorities. Now, I don't know about you, but a can-do attitude and valuing hard work are traits that are praised in many different cultures, not just the so-called white culture. I don't know, I've seen plenty of samurai movies. They seem to praise those traits. So anyway, this information was uncovered by a guy named Chris Rufo, who is an anti-critical race theory activist and reporter. He went on Tucker Carlson to explain why he thinks... This is all really bad. Chris Rufo is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, contributor to City Journal. He broke
1: this story. He joins us now to tell us what this training session was like. Chris, thanks so much for coming on and for your
0: reporting. What went on at this thing?
1: Well, this is a longstanding training program. Actually, 8000 Lockheed Martin executives and employees have been through race re-education programs. And this one was a particularly galling. They had uh, these executives go through these exercises where they said that being a white male was analogous to being a KKK member, uh, to being in the Aryan nation. Uh, they also said that, uh, you know, kind of funny way, white men can't jump. And all of these slurs and stereotypes about their own uh, origins. And they take it through a series of exercises where they had to review 156 white male privilege statements, apologizing for their race, apologizing for their sex, apologizing for their orientation. Uh, and the question is this. If a three-star general
2: retired in the United States military can't stand up to a bunch of crackpot diversity trainers,
1: exactly.
0: how on earth right. are we going to stand up to communist China? <laughs> I mean, that's that's really what it is, right? Like, how are we going to stand up to those dastardly Chinese if all we're doing is checking our privilege all day? Am I right? Now, obviously, Chris is a right winger, and that's why he hates all of this. But that does not mean that all of this is good in any way. For starters... This stuff doesn't even work on its own terms. According to a piece uh, by The Jacobin Show's very own Jen Pan in The New Republic... Quote, despite the rapid growth, today's diversity industry has largely failed to usher in the diverse workplaces and schools it promises. A growing number of empirical studies suggest that anti bias training, also known as implicit bias training, and other diversity initiatives don't work. A recent study by sociologists Frank Dubin at Harvard University and Alexander Kalev at Tel Aviv University, surveying more than 30 years of data collected from over 800 firms, found that diversity programs not only failed to increase workplace diversity, but in many cases even reduced diversity or exacerbated participants' biases. A 2016 meta-analysis of nearly 500 studies on implicit bias interventions similarly found that while such sessions sometimes briefly and slightly diminished participants' implicit biases, they had no significant long-term effects on people's behavior or attitudes, and in 2019... Another study of diversity training programs by a team of behavioral scientists further confirmed that one-time uh, that one-time interventions designed to reduce implicit bias, the type used by the vast majority of employers and institutions, tend not to change very, mi- uh, very many minds at all. Now, you would think this would stop the diversity consultant industry, but it has not. Diversity consultants like white men as full diversity partners, and more famously, Robin D'Angelo of white fragility fame charge huge amounts of money from corporations to hold these seminars. The question is, why? If it doesn't work, why are they spending all this money? Well, Bhaskar Sunkara points out that these training sessions are a great way to inoculate corporations from lawsuits in the future. He writes in The Guardian, quote, It's not a coincidence that corporate human resources departments love to contact diversity consultants like D'Angelo to do anti-bias trainings. Trainings more than pay for themselves if they can demonstrate a commitment to an inclusive workplace in the event of later anti-discrimination lawsuits. They're also a lot cheaper than paying workers better and addressing structural inequalities. The more that blame for discrimination can be shifted onto individual racist Karens, the less onus there is on powerful corporations and the politicians who defend them to make real changes. And that is, of course, true. But beyond that, beyond that, the fact that these diversity trainings fail on their own terms, and that they don't actually reduce racial bias, bias, and that they are a convenient way for corporations to protect themselves using a sort of woke sheen, there's actually something even more insidious going on here. And that is that the whole entire woke project is a form of class warfare. It started out in academia, where it gained a sort of radical cachet. Then it became dominant in the media, and it has since been absorbed by basically every major corporation in America, including Lockheed Martin, the largest weapons manufacturer in the world. Now, that should give everyone a little bit of pause. If a set of values, cultural language, and ideology that are, in theory, meant to institute radical change are easily absorbed by the structures of power, then it was really, really never a threat from the beginning and in fact is a useful tool for those in power. There are hilarious examples of people using wokeness for repressive ends, such as the time white gentrifiers in Austin called the cops on black and Latino car clubs that have gathered in local parks for decades, labeling them a, quote, toxic display of masculinity. And there are studies that show that anti-racist training actually exacerbate classism, Quote, a recent paper published in the Journal of Experimental Psychology General suggests that the idea of white privilege may have an unexpected drawback. It can reduce empathy for white people who are struggling with poverty. The paper finds that social liberals, people who have socially liberal views on the major political issues, are actually less likely to empathize with a poor white person's plight after being given a reading on white privilege. Seeing the world through a Race reductionist lens is very useful for capital because it is completely antithetical to solidarity. If you're constantly emphasizing people's differences, it's harder to build the kind of cross racial solidarity that can really threaten capital. And beyond that, the whole concept of white culture is dubious at best. And when you keep reinforcing the idea that there is such a thing as white culture and that it has all these inherently nefarious things, a lot of people who didn't choose to be born white are going to say, fuck it, maybe they're right. I'm proud of my white culture. Maybe we should, I don't know, preserve it or purify it. You know, historically, that's been a very dicey proposition. And the basic idea that you should judge people for the content of their character and not the color of their skin is prob- is broadly popular and both strategically and morally correct. But when you just look at someone superficially, you are able to judge them based on superficial factors, like take the admiration of Nelson Mandela by basically every major western leader. Barack Obama for example was obsessed with Mandela. But were they really listening to Mandela or were they just attracted to the sort of idea of a Mandela or the image of Mandela? Take for example Michael Welp, who is one of the founders of the White Men as Full Diversity Partners, the guy who led the anti uh, the white privilege training at Lockheed Martin. He spoke of his admiration for Mandela in a TED talk about whiteness. Three years before Nelson Mandela died, I wrote him a letter. In it, I said, I was astonished to see you emerge from 27 years in prison and embrace from a place of love the men, the white men who imprisoned you. You showed that love is the greatest force for change. And I want you to know that it's the same thread of love that I carry that you passed on to the white men in South Africa. That's inspiring stuff, no doubt, but I wonder what Mandela would have thought about Michael Welp selling himself to the war profiteers who helped oppress his people in South Africa. Did his whiteness prevent him from listening to Mandela's actual words?
3: If there is a country that has committed unspeakable atrocities in the world, it is the United States of America. They don't care. They don't care for the human for human beings. Fifty-seven years ago, when Japan was retreating on all fronts, they decided to drop the atom bomb in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, killed a lot of innocent people who are still suffering from the effects of those bombs. Those bombs were not aimed against the Japanese, they were aimed against the Soviet Union to say, look, this is the power that we have, if you dare oppose what we do, this is what is going to happen to you. Because they are so arrogant, they decided to kill innocent people in Japan who are still suffering from that.
0: I wonder if uh, Michael Welp had gotten his hands on Harry Truman, he wouldn't have, uh, you know, he would have checked his own white privilege and just uh, realized, oh my God, you know, those Japanese, they're POC. Maybe we shouldn't drop the bomb on them.
1: Yeah, that's the, <laughs> if only diversity trainings could have been around in the, in the forties. Uh, yeah. You know, maybe like, because, you know, in the moment when, like, we had actual Jim Crow, like, if only we could have, like, taught people to diversify their workplace mm. and their, you know, gotten rid of their bad racist beliefs. Um, yeah. I mean, the thing is, like, you know, and this isn't my original, like, you know, comment on this, but, like, I think it's very likely that a lot of corporations will see diversity trainers and diversity uh, specialists and experts as, like, the new HR mechanism, because, you don't really need an HR person uh, if like the funk, if what you're focused on is like disciplining your workers, uh, when you can bring someone in that, you know, does a training and says, admit you're a racist, tell us, you know, tell us all the times you did racist things, you had bad racist thoughts. And then when it comes time to, you know, when the boss says, mm, I don't really like this person, they should either like speed up or get out. Uh, and then they have, you know, they could come back to them and say, well, you actually, I heard you're racist. You told us yourself.
0: Yeah you said the n-word when you were uh rapping along to a jay-z song when you were in high school you know like you're gonna get fired over that
1: yeah i think it's just like all of this wokeness stuff i mean like like you said i mean i think you summarized it really wonderfully but like it's it's starts in in uh the academy it starts in academia with like basically the end of uh, the the 60s generation, you get all these people that move into academia for the first time. And now you have this explosion of uh, ethnic studies and cultural studies. And um, some of it, of course, is good, but a lot of it just ends up, you know, it, it exists in that world where like you have to find your own lane and then you become the spokesperson for a particular set of ideas Uh, And then you get very territorial over it. And then there's a ton of stuff. It's just like so much of like ends up getting produced is just gibberish because it's it is all the identity with none of the class politics. And uh, and then what we're seeing now is that, like, it's just been so easily incorporated into the corporate world as like a means of disciplining and of assorting mechanism. Like, not only do you need to have the correct degree, but you need to have the correct woke worldview in order to be hired here and uh it helps them like you're saying it helps them with uh you know now they don't have to worry about uh if there's going to be some you know uh race related scandal or something because they have disciplined already and then they have further disciplining measures to say well oh, we'll just get rid of them if if something happens because we have them on tape basically saying that you know they have bad thoughts in their head
0: Did you see the story uh, that came out in the New York Times this week about the woman who pretended to be a Cherokee for decades? She was an icon of what they called Native American feminism um, and was like, you know, one of the biggest kind of – she was one of the leaders in the early 90s of of the movement um, that many Native Americans – were involved in that was kind of like against the pretendians that they call the pretend Indians pretendians, you know, like the Elizabeth Warrens of the world. Um, And uh, she was, she was one of like the leaders of that movement, like quote unquote found her voice in that movement when she herself um, was a pretend Indian. Um, And it's just like the whole reading through that whole story. I mean, you see just the, the sort of hard limits of that kind of worldview that it it really um, it creates first of all these kind of weird incentives in which we're seeing tons of academics like pretending to be the the uh, member of some oppressive oppressed minority um, which is just a bizarre kind of quirk of whatever s- state of society we're in <laughs> and um, but 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 beyond that it just like it creates this culture of like, in order to speak about something or to think about something or to care about something, you have to be of the thing, you know, which is just a it's just antithetical to any kind of cross racial solidarity. I mean, they, they would never say that they would like, no, it's, there's, it's totally possible. But like in, in actual practice, it's impossible because right. you 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 start to self, you know, sort people into different groups rather than to sort of bring people together um, you know, and there's no there's no point in kind of like denying, um, you know, that there's like cultural differences and things like that. You know, there's no one is like, you know, here to say that we should deny those things. But like, honestly, like the the sort of basic, like this is like cheesy and sappy to say, but the basic kind of Martin Luther King framework of things, you know, that seems to me the right way of doing it. Like we're, you know, we, we don't like negate any sort of... um Particular kind of oppression, but like our strategy to overcome it is to build as broad a base as possible and to judge people on the content of their character, not the color of skin. I don't know. It just sounds like it's like yeah, man. That that sounds that sounds like people can get on board with that to me. Right.
1: Well, the question is, it's like do these cultural differences go all the way down to like to your very essence as a human being? And the left has historically, up until the last like thirty years, of been very clear in saying, no, not at all. There is something that binds us all together. There is some kind of common humanity. And that's part of like it's an it's an inherently uh it's inherent to our theory of of advancing into some better future. Whatever if we want to call it socialism or something else, that we actually do think that people have the capacity to sympathize and empathize, to uh, to actually have like a communitarian ethos that we can take care of one another. That we like, despite languages and cultural differences, different traditional practices. That like we, at our core, actually have so much more in common. And then what we end up saying is that the political practice that we you come up with in order to like get to that better world ends up being on material grounds on class grounds because we say mm-hmm. that ultimately the, like the working class uh and their interests are going to end up being the interests of the vast majority of most people they are the most people and so by pursuing their interests we end up pursuing a universalistic politics where we say that every single person should have certain aspects of their life guaranteed uh you know certain like true human rights not in kind of the like uh foreign policy human rights terminology but like true human like the fact that you're a human being you have inherent value and worth and you deserve certain things um yeah but there's also actually i want to pull one more thing into this because uh like you're saying i mean like it's this is politically really bad too and we actually have data on this um that uh Jared Abbott, friend of the show, although I don't think he's actually ever been on the show, but he's been on he's been on the channel. Um he he's uh he co-author I've
0: I've I've cited him extensively yeah. in in decodes for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So friend of the show. Um yes. and uh he he wrote an, uh, a review piece that came out a couple months ago. Um there was a book by uh Seth Maskin or Maskett rather called Learning from Loss. And it's just, like, a lot of empirical data trying to understand the 2020 uh, Democratic primary electorate. And, you know, why did they end up ultimately going with Biden? Uh, you know, did Bernie have a shot just based on, like, the actual voters themselves? You know, and the thing is that um, I'm going to pull up this quote because he says that uh, there is substantial evidence. And he's, so he's quoting Seth, but he's also there's, he's citing uh, evidence by Andrew B. Hall or empirical research, rather, but there's substantial evidence that candidates pre- perceived by voters as being extreme tend to underperform candidates perceived as moderate. But it is less clear how voters' perceptions of extremism vary across different policy positions and messages and message framings offered by candidates. And he goes on to say that, for instance, the results of Maskit survey experiments suggest that many voters perceive progressive policies aimed at addressing group-based inequalities as being more extreme then, say, a non-group-based policy to increase high-paying jobs through economic growth and subsequently punish candidates who hold the more progressive positions. Basically saying, like, for whatever reason, right or wrong, people perceive, like, race-specific or um, means-tested programs, programs that are, like, really specific, uh, both, like, in content and in rhetoric, being aimed at uh, particular communities as more extreme, and it's punished politically. So, like, not only are, like, universal programs morally more right, it's, it's, it's right to take care of everyone, that at, because we do believe that every single person has certain human value and worth, uh, it's also politically more viable. And, yeah. uh, and so this is what the left should be, you know, considering moving forward and should be running on these kinds of programs and these kinds of policies that are universal that just say, you yeah, we're going to raise your wage and give you some health care. It's, you need those things. yeah,
0: I mean, and uh, I mean, honestly, like when it's this kind of thing is not just uh, limited to white people um right. you know, often uh you know working class uh mexican Americans and things like that like they don't like to be judged for being Mexican, even if it's like in like in a positive way, if that makes sense, you know what I mean, like they don't want to be seen. Like, they don't want to be seen as, like, um, oppressed or something because they're Mexican-American or whatever. You know, like, this is is very common. And, like, you know, again, like, policies that and and political kind of strategy that kind of ties people together and kind of makes them feel like they're part of a shared thing with other people in the country. Like, that just, like, appeals to people. Like, no one wants to be, like, isolated from the rest of them. You know, like... That just doesn't – that's just in their bones, I think, people feel that way. Um, I don't know. Like, it's just – it's been such a strange thing to to witness because, you know, I think Biden, who kind of um, is, you know, an awful human being and, and, and all that stuff, but he, he, he comes from like an old school – um Democratic Party like he he was around before the Democratic Party like just barely but b- before the Democratic Party really turned you know full neoliberal and um you know DLC and all that stuff he he kind of remembers the old hands that used to kind of dominate American politics the, the sort of New Deal um New Deal Democrats that used to just utterly dominate and so like he he has a lot of that rhetorical training or at, mm-hmm. at least like a faint memory of it and he uses it to great effect like I don't know, like when, you know, reporters will ask him I was like, Do you think like, you know, all of Trump voters are racist? Which is like a classic kind of liberal debate, you know? Um, he's like, I don't I don't think so. I mean I think most people are good people, you know, right. like and we're trying to like and that's just the right strategy to to move forward and to try to build something better and to just win. Because right. if you start to tell people like that they're bad, like they're that's just not that is not gonna work. Um and it's been wild to see awful people like the Clintons, for example, kind of be able to rebrand themselves as woke, right? Like of all people, the Clintons. Come on, like you know, we know these people. Um, we have, they have a track record. It's the opposite of what wokeness com- like purports to to care about, right? Um, well, because the, you know, the so.
1: question the question is ultimately like, what is your political goal? Like, I want a world where we have Medicare for all. And I think the way that you're going to get to that is through massive, broad coalitions, primarily rooted in working people, but like as many middle class people who, who will get on board, if we can get some elites, great, but that's not the target. The point is that like, we need a massive, broad base, uh, if we're going to be able to take on like the most powerful ruling class in human history, like even just, yeah. even just having the base is not going to be enough to, to win that fight. Of course, like it's, no. but it's it just the, gives it's you a prayer. prerequisite.
0: Yeah. yeah. Gives you a prayer to fight. Yeah. Yeah. It's,
1: but then, it's, but then all this stuff, like just all of these, like some, like no one wants to feel like a token. No one wants to be stereotyped. Like no one wants to feel like they're like not like uh, an equal human being. Uh, yeah. But it's, it's like, it's just these middle-class people. It's people that are in professional settings that can use it as like a, a bargaining chip as they're trying to move up in the world. And yeah. it's academic <laughs> stuff. And that's, and then we all ends up, end up dealing with the consequences of that.
0: The, the funniest thing happened to me, Kale. Uh, like it was last week or two weeks ago, um, I, got, I got approached. I got a call from a, a headhunter, an executive search person um, for a job that I'm like wildly unqualified for. Like comically unca- unqualified for. You know, like CEO of a, of a big prestigious media organization you know that you've heard of uh, and i was like i took the call obviously just mostly out of curiosity but i was like you know like why wouldn't you and i'm talking to this person and um i was like i gotta be honest like i'm surprised you guys are reaching out to me for mm-hmm. this job and uh she's like well we had you on a list of of um latinx uh, media executives and uh You know, we just really want to we just really want to focus on, you know, diversity. And we're really like committed to, you know, blah, blah, blah. And And you correct her you said, "Ah, ah, ah,
1: latinx. Well, no,
0: I didn't correct her in that way. I said, listen, you know, I appreciate that. But you're going to get me and yourself in trouble. You know, I don't want to pull on Elizabeth Warren uh, because I am not latinx. You are more latinx than I am as an Argentine uh, American. Um, People don't know about that. Uh, But you're more latinx than I am. I am a colonizer imperialist from Spain. Um, you know, I can, I am not part of the latinx thing. And she was like, Oh, oh my God. Like, I'm so sorry. Like, as if she offended me. And I'm like, no, 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 (laughs) like not that, not Mm. that either. But I'm just like, you know, trying to help you out. And she's like, okay, can you explain that to me? And like, I had to like explain it to her. And she was like, you know, this well-meaning, like, she honestly like meant well, like, and she has, Mm. she had like a sort of genuine commitment to, um, so, you know, she she's like, I think it's good that we're trying to uplift, you know, minorities and people of color or whatever. And like, I just like her referencing me as a pe- person of yeah. color. Like, I was like, you're going to get in trouble. Like, you're going to get in trouble. Like, if it's that, uh, that
1: conversation ended with you going, Yeah, and I'll follow up with the Adolf Reed article in the email. Don't worry. Right. <laughs>
0: yeah. No, yeah. I already said that to her. No, but it was, uh, it was funny. I mean, it was just like a funny thing. Like, I, but it was, that was why I was being considered for the job, is for the mm-hmm. supposed. Color of my skin, you know, even though she, she was on the phone, like she, she couldn't, she couldn't see me or anything like that. Um, mm-hmm. But I thought it was kind of funny uh, that it, just the very thing of, of this time. But yeah. Um,
1: well, I don't know. we are joined by uh, Renee Rojas, who is a sociologist who teaches at uh, uh, Binghamton University uh he has been researching the development of neoliberalism in latin america for uh it seems like forever there's there's <laughs> i believe there's maybe a book in the in the works that may kind of culminate some of this um and very much looking forward to to reading that he's also um he spent uh many years as a as a activist in um in chile and uh he is also on the editorial board of catalyst mm. uh, so Welcome, Renee.
2: Thanks for having me. It's good to be with you guys. Just a slight correction: most of my um, political work or activist work in Latin America was not in Chile. Um, it was mostly in Mexico, actually, and mm. uh, one year in, in Guatemala. So,
1: damn, you're just you're calling me um, out as a fake yeah. friend right now.
0: Uh, get the facts straight, Kale. You fake news. You know, you, you lie <laughs> fake news media.
2: Well, it's you know. As you guys were speaking, it's all one big monolithic category, anyway.
0: Yeah, it's, it'd be, it's Mexico, Chile, same shit, right? You guys are all just Latinx let, down there, right? Uh, like That's yeah, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, we we want the
1: the Latinx experience. We want to <laughs> hear uh, just
0: what's going on in the continent, I suppose. Yeah, what's going on? It's, what's going on in Chile? Explain to us what's going on there. What the hell's going on?
2: Wow. A lot is going on, and I imagine you're referring specifically to uh, the latest elections, which were held about a week and a half ago. Um, These elections were, you know, uh, received most attention because um, Chileans were electing delegates to a constituent assembly, right, that will redraft the country's constitution, um, but there are also local and gubernatorial elections for the first time there were provincial um elections in, in chile um but of course, most of the attention has been paid correctly so to the outcome of the constituent elections and the very fact that these elections were held in the first place and the best way to describe what occurred is it's a you know veritable earthquake um the, that has shattered, really, the foundations of the old political regime in Chile. Um, this is the regime that emerged um, out of the dictatorship and the transition, the post-authoritarian transition that occurred in 88, 89, and that um, ruled over Chile ever since, primarily you know, under the under center-left governments so what this election what these elections have have done essentially has been to um shatter right the old partisan system the old political system and um open for the first time you know in over four decades the possibility of more substantive um, democratic reform in the country
0: mark fisher um talks about the assassination of Salvador Allende uh, in chile, uh, chile as the the sort of opening salvo of the neoliberal era like that the it's like where the neoliberalism kind of begins a good place to kind of start it officially <laughs> um and chile um for many decades like in places like the economist magazine and whatever has been held up as a kind of model of a free market economy and just how well everything goes there it's like a you know, decent place to live and the thing and, you know, woohoo, great job. Um, What's the, is that picture uh, uh, an accurate one that this sort of free market reforms that Chile um, is famous for, um, does that create a really decent, healthy society where everyone is just happy?
2: Yeah, and that's a good question because that's fundamentally what was at play here, what was in question during these elections and not just this round of elections. I mean, Chile has been going through a cycle of mass mobilization and and rejection of of this um, model, right, for about the past ten years, and it really, really um, intensified and exploded in October of two thousand nineteen. But to, going back to your question, right, Chile has been celebrated, you know, as the poster child of neoliberalism. I think precisely because it allegedly combined two things that we all love right prosperity and democracy and there's some truth actually to, to both of those assessments but they're just wildly incomplete uh, in terms of prosperity you know Chile received this attention as you know, the miracle the South American miracle in the 90s Chileans took to we took to calling ourselves los del pacifico the Jaguars of the Pacific. Um Because Chile did experience you know very, very robust growth rates um, th- from beginning of the late '80s under the dictatorship, into the 2000s, um, averaging about five percent yearly growth rates with some years hitting you know up to eight, nine, ten percent. Um, the result of that was a an overall, increase in living standards, and you can measure that by just looking at GDP per capita, which for, you know, formerly poor country, now an OECD country, right, reached 16, about sixteen seventeen thousand dollars per year. So on paper, you know, it looked like the model had, in fact, delivered prosperity um, across the board um, because you had these, you know, compared to the rest of Latin America, fairly spectacular looking. Um, you know, growth and and um, per capita income rates. Um, of course, if you dig a little further, what you find is that Chile, by the same token, was characterized by just massive levels of inequality and also um, huge levels of, of um, popular and social insecurity. Uh, you know, there was a, a big chunk of the population that received very low wages. Um, some were between um, forty and thirty percent, or the really, way, thirty to forty percent of Chileans continue to work in the informal markets so that don't have secure employment. Um, you know, for for income and to feed the, their families. Um, and for many people, you know, they had to assume risk on their own: risk in terms of getting healthcare, risk in terms of sending their kids to decent schools. And a, another thing that became a huge problem was. Um, the condition the living conditions of elderly people because pensions have been privatized and about 70% of um retired elderly workers in Chile um make under half of the minimum wage so they can't even you know they can barely scrape by so that's what was happening in terms of on the socioeconomic front um in terms of you know political democracy again things weren't as rosy as the Economist, the New York Times, and many Chileans themselves, elite Chileans, uh, try to paint the picture. Chile ended up; um, it first, I mean, undeniably, of course, transitioned from a military dictatorship into a liberal democracy with, you know, civil and political rights and free elections, and that's all something that needs to be recognized. But it ended up producing an oligarchic system in which two um main coalition, the center right and the center left, pretty much traded power. The dominant coalition was the center left, the uh, originally called the Concertacion, um, which was in power for 20 years straight. But they they pretty much shared power and became the um, as I said, oligarchs of the political system making all um policy decisions and excluding the vast majority of Chileans who felt alienated, who didn't feel represented. Um, and you can get a picture of that by, of that kind of um, crisis of representation by looking at um, voter turnout rates. In the first democratic elections in Chile, 90%, percent um, i talking about 89, 90, 90% of registered voters came out to vote. By 2017, so after almost you know 30 years of this, um, under forty percent, around forty percent of the population was was bothering to even vote. So, as you know, even in the political realm, it turned out to be not a very representative um, state, and you know that that's what led to this massive crisis of legitimacy.
1: Right. To to just follow up at that point, um, and I wanna actually read something that you wrote in a recent catalyst piece titled Chile's Democratic Revolution. Uh so beyond just the voter turnout, um Since 2002, the figure for those reporting scant or zero trust in ruling parties has hovered around 40% or higher. In other words, just over 10 years into the transition, the vast majority of Chileans, the same uh, proportion that has now voted to rewrite the Constitution, had lost faith in all parties. And so I I, I guess the question is effectively, like, why? What, uh, like, why did they lose faith? And then maybe even more important for us, more concretely, uh, why did, the, uh, you know, for instance, working people lose faith in the left parties, um, that this is, uh, you know, we see these massive demonstrations uh, over the last couple of years, um, and it's somewhat more of a, it's, it's coming from working people. It's not coming from political parties. Uh, there's somewhat of a disconnect between the actions on the ground and the left uh, institutionally and, and um, in party formation. So I'm curious What like what uh,
2: leads us to that situation? Yeah, that's a great question. And before I actually try to answer that question, which is quite complex, obviously, and it deals with, you know, a long kind of span of time and and a lot of factors going into it. I do want to highlight something that was embedded in your question. You know, as I said earlier, the dominant force in Chilean post-authoritarian politics has been the center left. The center-left in Chile includes the Socialist Party, right? This is the party of Allende, of Salvador Allende, who was deposed in the 1973 coup, right? This is the party that tried to make a democratic, you know, Chilean road to real socialism, right? And so many people might think that as the, you know, party of of Allende, once it came to power, and it was, you know, it started off as the junior partner in the center-left coalition, um, the, the, the major partner was, were the Christian Democrats. But by 2000, it had really become the strongest party within the, the center left coalition. And so one might ask, um, one might, I should uh, say, um, suspect that, you know, with the socialists in power, with Michel Bachelet being elected twice, right, in power, um, this would be a pro labor uh, government. This would be a pro working class and pro poor government. And so it, I think it shocks many people to um, see just how thorough and deep the rejection, the popular rejection of the Concertacion, um, has become. Um, and, you know, the reason is that, um, in very, very simple terms, this was not a party of labor. This was not a party of the poor, you know, as it had been under Allende. This was a neoliberal party dominated by elites and that governed the party for elites, right there's There's no way around that. Um, part of it is due to the manner in which the transition occurred, um, in which, you know, in order to restore democracy, this new center left political class had to agree to leave the basic rules of the game, the basic market rules of the game intact, right? But part of it is also because of how this party, had refashioned itself, has transformed itself and um, has deliberately, right, continued to fragment and weaken labor and popular sectors and has instead woven very direct, very chummy ties with the country's business elite. And so that resulted in, you know, um, all, all of the indicators that I, I listed um, somewhat in a somewhat disorganized fashion um, earlier on. That resulted, for instance, in um, privatized pensions and th- therefore no kind of real material security for elderly people in Chile. That resulted in privatei- in the privatized and the c- continuation of privatized healthcare, right, um, where most Chileans don't have security when it comes to being insured or receiving properly proper health care. That resulted, for instance, in labor legislation that is completely, has been completely in favor of employers and has undermined the um, ability of workers to organize and to um, bargain collectively. The result of all of that has been a fractured society, right? Where with massive Wealth accumulated at the top and massive material insecurity at the bottom.
0: I want to ask about this constitutional convention. Um, I want to ask about the makeup of it and what who like, who, who are these people who are writing the constitution? Um, How do you write a constitution? Do you just Mm -hmm. start writing? Um, Seems like very difficult and complicated to get everyone to agree. Um, I'm just like imagining what a constitutional convention would look like in this country, like in 2021. And it just, it seems like it would be utter chaos. So what is that, what is that process going to look like? Um, What do you expect to be in it and, um, and who is deciding what's in it? Yeah.
2: And, and even before, I think, answering this question, uh, I should go back to something I said earlier. When I said that this new center or centrist, center-left political class, right, made a series of pacts as it negotiated the transition uh, back to democracy, one of them was to um, inherit, as it were, uh, the constitution that was imposed through corruption and coercion under Pinochet. So the, the, Constitution, which has governed Chile um, since the return to democracy, has been, you know, the constitution imposed in 1980 by the military regime. And so that is the constitution, which pretty much became the target of mass fury, mass resentment um, that exploded onto the streets in 2019. Right. In this popular rebellion that lasted for weeks and that the regime could not. Um, put down through force. It could not contain. It could not. Um, it, it found no ways of getting, you know, young people and workers off off the streets and and um, keep them from rioting on the streets. And so, in November of 2019, the center right government under Pineda, right, feeling this pressure from 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 the street. I mean, it, you know, Santiago was burning, and not just Santiago, but many many towns and cities up and down the country. So, at that point, it made this huge concession. It negotiated with um, all factions in parliament, including a new left that has emerged in Chile called the Frente Amplio, um, and agreed to hold um, a plebiscite in which Chileans were asked whether they wanted even to, you know, a new constitution um, and how the new constitution would be written. So, uh, as a result of that, in October of last year, right, 80% of Chileans voted um, to reject the old constitution and for a constituent assembly that would rewrite the constitution. Now, the elections to um, choose delegates to this assembly was postponed on a couple of occasions because of the pandemic, but now that it was held, the results are really not only fascinating, um, but... Um, Quite shocking, shocking in the sense that it, they portend a uh, complete um, overhaul of Chile's political system. The old, the two dominant coalitions, the center right and the center left, um, were just crushed. The center right knew it would lose badly and it was hoping to win a third of the votes so it could veto any major transformations. It only won 20% of the vote. The real loser, however, in the elections, um, is the center left, the old Concertacion, the Christian Democrats, and the Socialists, primarily. Um, and it stands to reason they, as I said earlier, they have been the uh, bulwark of of the regime, of the post-authoritarian neoliberal regime. They simply got trounced. I think they got something like fourteen percent of the vote, to give you an indication of the magnitude of their defeat the christian democrats which used to be the strongest party right in the 90s and into the early 2000s they elected two delegates out of 155 just two delegates i mean it's just a major rejection and and thrashing and alongside of that defeat of the defeat of those two um, regime forces um, you see the emergence of new political forces primarily and i think most encouraging is uh, the emergence of a coalition between the Communist Party, which had been totally uh, relegated to the margins of, of Chilean politics up until very recently, uh, a coalition between the Communist and this new left force, the Frente Amplio. They came together, uh, ran, ran shared slates, and elected about 20% of the delegates. Right So did as well, uh, if not better than the old ruling coalitions and along with the this new left block that has emerged, um, a number of independent slates and lists did quite well um with them. Most encouraging of these is the what's called the lista del pueblo, which is um, a series of fairly motley slates that. Um, social movements and grassroots organizations put together, and they received um, near close to fifteen percent of the vote. So you, these are the folks who are going to come together, um, and within a year, draft the new constitution. There are a number of rules that you know we might want to get into them, um, if you if if you want, right? But the interesting thing and the promising um, development again is that the old oligarchs. Um, the old mainstays of the, neo, you know, the democratic neoliberal regime um, are now minorities and have been tremendously weakened. We should do the new rules. What are the new rules? Um, well, I, I'm just going to mention uh, a couple because, um, you know, they received a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. Um, one actually had an ironic outcome. Um, the, one of the rules that was uh, put in place, right, both for um, putting together slates, list of candidates, and then for actually electing delegates, right, that will be drafting the Constitution, is the gender parity rule, right? Um, at least half of um, candidates had to be women, and at least half of elected delegates, you know, through whatever formula they had, had to be women as well. Um, turns out that, I guess, m- most political forces, even the, the right in Chile, has no problem fielding um, women candidates. And it turns out that men actually benefited from this rule more than women, because more women yeah. were elected than men. So to reach parity, um, some of the women had to be removed and men had to be mm. <laughs> raised. Right. To- it's about time. <laughs> it's about damn so, time. Well, yeah. I think mean, it's interesting because, you know, Chile has experienced over the last uh, few years, a huge feminist mobilizations, um, you know, at least that's how they're called. And they've had these, these massive days um, of demonstration. Of demonstrations where up to, I think last year, up to 2 million women hit the streets. And it was really impressive, right? And so there is a sense, right, that gender equality um, in a very, very sexist country I mean, there's no way around that. Right. Has been forced onto the agenda and it will, you know, gen- gender oppression it has to be dealt with. What I find somewhat surprising again, is that the parties from right to left, right. Actually took this on fairly naturally. They didn't really have to, it wasn't a big imposition for them. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we'll see how, how that plays out. Um the the another similar thing is indigenous representation. There are I think eleven seats reserved for not just the Mapuche, which is the major um, kind of indigenous population in Chile, but all um, indigenous groups. Um, and that's a good thing because you know most of these communities and populations have been involved in um, local grassroots campaigns against. Uh, multinational corporations, right, and have developed high levels of organization and programmatically, right, um, point toward, I think, and will be fighting for um, universalist de- demands for, for everyone. So I, I think the left and popular forces will definitely count on um, their, you know, on, on working with them, can count on working with them. The other, the other big and controversial uh, rule Right, that came out of that November agreement uh, between Pineda and uh, most groups in in Parliament um, was that uh, for for big changes you need super majorities, um, right, to, to ratify these these, um, these these new elements of the constitution, and so that meant that you know one third of a block that. Dominate that controls only one third of, of the delegates um, could veto, as I said earlier, uh, major transformations. Um, we'll see what happens. Things are in such flux right now, particularly for the um, two dominant old coalitions, right? Um, that we'll have to keep an eye on, particularly the old Concertacionistas. The and, and in particular, I mentioned that the Christian Democrats just there—they've really been relegated to the dustbin of Chita's political history. But the Socialist Party somehow—and I still don't quite understand why—they actually elected fourteen representatives, four, uh, representatives hmm. fourteen delegates. It's going to be very hard for them to, um, I think, band with the right. Um, all the pressure from the street and from their own constituencies, to the extent that they still have any, right, uh, mass constituencies, will push them to um, ally with the this new left and independent um, delegates uh, to, you know, vote in the types of basic legal uh, foundations that the population really wants. And here, what we're talking about is not just political. Um, democratic rights but social and economic rights as well
1: right well so what's interesting both in that and whether it be the the plebiscite or you mentioned uh kind of the uh the feminist movement in chile uh so much of the actual political manifestations have come through people going to the streets that it's been protest action um and it's something it's something of a global phenomenon obviously that uh we just saw a year of uh, of protests around racial justice, um, Black Lives Matter in the U.S., but also um, kind of you know uh, regionally specific variants of that are across the globe um, in in all different countries um, and. I'm curious, I mean, because you you have a critique of uh, of like maybe the limitations of yeah. protests. and I was wondering if we can get into that because you have a quote. I, I want to read just one more quote uh, from that same catalyst piece that I, I brought up earlier where you say that uh, it was not realistic to think of toppling the government via unending street escalation given the low levels of organization and strategic coordination that still hamper popular forces. While disruption on the streets and in workplace workplaces certainly wrested, uh, wrestled excuse me, wrestled the promise of a plebiscite. It was only those at the highest echelons of state power who could have granted the concession. Uh, and, and in other work, you know, you talk about the importance of mobile, mobilizational resources and stru- stru- um, structural leverage. Yeah. And so I was, I guess, it, so it's the question's is specific to Chile, but in a more broader sense as well, um, you know how strong are protests and when does the left want to be utilizing protests?
2: Yeah. Um, I think, well, let me just say something about uh, the particular situation that, that, you know, the, the, what that, that passage that you read was responding to. There was a lot of criticism and, and then I'll use that to jump to the, the bigger question. Mm-hmm. Th- there was a lot of criticism, um, you know, in, in November of, 2019, right, of the left um, congressional figures that signed on to this agreement, right, um, that opened the way for the the plebiscite, firstly, and secondly, the constituent elections, and now the assembly. Because there was this sense that mobilization and protests on the street was so strong and so disruptive. And it was. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. That's the only reason we got this concession, right? Because of the cost imposed by the disruption on the street, the disruption in neighborhoods, the disruption to the economy um, that this rebellion uh, imposed. But there was the sense that um, that type of mobilization alone could have continued and accomplished um, bringing down the regime. Um, the the um, uh, Frente Amplio people who, who signed on were accused of saving Piñera's ass because he was about to fall, right? And we should have let the revolution occur on the street. The fact is perhaps because they were so strong, because the rebellion, this mass insurgency was so powerful and, and it had rocked the government so dramatically, it probably could have brought down Piñera. Right, but then what? It would not have had the wherewithal, right, to take over to topple the entire regime and build a new one, right? And that's where the limit. Unless you're striving for a Bolshevik-type takeover and <laughs> revolution, which I think is off the agenda for a number of reasons, right? Uh, that's where the the weakness of that type of approach, um, I think, is is, is most mm. notable. Um, instead, what I think movements need, and this is what has occurred, not as strongly as perhaps we'd like, but this is what's happening in Chile right now. Instead, what we need to do is find some kind of transmission mechanisms from mass social movements and mobilization on the street, right, to the levers of power, to state institutions, right, so that that mobilization, that disruption coming from below can actually translate into institutional change, institutional um, transformation, and that is exactly what the movement uh, achieved in Chile through that agreement, through that concession by the state, right, or from 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 the state. And so, one of the uh, I think ways of of um, using this insight, if if you find it to be insightful, that is, right, is to now look at the situation you know, in, in the assembly. There's a lot of praise and celebration for these independent lists, right? Because they represent the grassroots, the more autonomous networks of 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 community movements and social movements, right? And they will be the ones who will be able to uh, refound Ch- the Ch- Chilean democracy, right? Um, I'm somewhat skeptical of that. If these independent, quote-unquote, independent movements, right, and their grassroots affiliates and organizations, don't find ways to team up, right, with more organized um, parties and institutions that have programmatic and strategic vision and discipline, right? Um, I fear that all that energy, all that potential might be lost. Just to give you a, a slight uh, taste of this, a sense of this, right? These independent lists in Chile, right? It wasn't just one standard across the board from north to south um, slate, right? It was really fragmented throughout. And as a result, because they couldn't get, they couldn't coordinate a single slate, much less coordinate with this new left slate, right? As a result, about 10% of the vote was just squandered. And we could have had an additional 10% of the delegates on our side had there been better coordination um, with these, quote unquote, independence, grassroots, social movement forces. And I think mm. we, sh- we can project the same kind of concern uh, moving forward in terms of um, the role they might play and how they might better articulate um, with partisan forces.
0: I I want to ask about the the Frente Amplio um and just kind of like what what's their deal? Like what kind of party is it? Like what's the what are the differences between them and a, and the Communist Party like, you know, if I'm some Chilean guy and I'm sampling the parties, what would make me join the Frente Amplio over the Communist Party or vice versa? Are, they, are like are they like a Podemos or, or in Spain or what what's their deal?
2: Yeah, it's a good question and first of all, I'm really happy that they've come together and they, they you know, in this alliance with the communists, because there seemed to be these two kind of distinct paths that had too many differences to come, to come together. So it's for Chilean politics and for the prospects of democratizing Chilean society, right. And for, you know, um, social justice um, outcomes, it's really, really um, a great development that, that, the Frente Amplio has has um, joined the communist and coalition, but you know who who or what is the Frente Amplio? Frente Amplio really grew out of primarily the mass student mobilizations of 2011, 2012. Um, you know those were the first huge you know mass protest that rocked the the post authoritarian regime in in Chile, and it spawned right? New organizations, new political figures. And the elections that followed in 2013 saw a few of them elected to Congress, somehow breaking through this duopoly, right? That's actually set, that's enshrined in Pinochet's 1980 constitution, because it it pretty much reserves all representation for the top two forces per district, right? But these new movements and their leaders um, had had such an impact through their the that um those mobilizations that a few of them broke through some were communist some were not communist some um were they described themselves as autonomous or Gramscian. um <laughs> uh, all kinds of <laughs> stuff right um, but <laughs> they said he won't
0: um unlike people dad what's that he's he's people who judge's dad is one of the leaders <laughs> he's the
2: yeah well yeah the difference is that these guys actually um were part of a mass, a mass movement right um, on the street. But, but so when these new young leaders were elected to Congress, the communists, and there are a couple of communists among them, um, decided to make an alliance with the center-left. What, in my view, what really distinguishes the front-demand, besides the fact that they emerged from, you know, these new mass protests, is that they were um, completely opposed to not just the right and center right, but the center left as well, because they correctly saw them as the managers of Chilean neoliberalism, right, and so they preserved that independence and kept building their organizations um, from student organizations they went on to have influence in teachers' unions from there into other sectors, et cetera et cetera, so that by two thousand the two thousand and seventeen elections. Right. And this is, again, a force that j- had just come together as a formal alliance in 2014. By 2017, they won 20% of the first round vote in the presidential elections. Right, So they kind of established themselves as a new, new left in Chile. Hmm. Um, you know, to be distinguished from the old hard, if you want to say hard left, to distinguish, to differentiate from the center left, right, which were the communists. Right, Mm -hmm. Communists by then um, had lost its mass base that it historically had in in Chile's working class Um, because it had been marginalized from the transition process and from these negotiations. It had really become a force, um, an extremely weak force in Chilean politics. They experienced a revitalization both through their Uh, participation in the mass student movement, but then through some local victories, primarily Daniel Jadwe's uh, victory in one of the Santiago townships in Recoleta. And he's done quite well. And so that has bolstered communist um, credibility um, because, you know, he's uh, governed in very, very pragmatic ways, but delivered some real reforms for poor and working people in, in Recoleta. Um, and so then, you know, they they come together, and all the or not all, but many of the Chileans who have, of course, come to reject the old regime, and by that rejecting both the center left and the center right, see in this new alliance as a viable formation um, that can move things forward.
1: Well, so my last question is actually it harkens back to that. Old hard left, uh, because as as you've written, uh, the social base for kind of the classic left in Latin America, much like you know the left around the world, was historically uh, working class, industrial, uh, and manufacturing. Um, not you know not everywhere exactly the same, but that that's typically kind of been. Um, you know, concentrated workers, uh, somewhat skilled, that have a good deal of structural leverage in the economy. That they're important for the process of of corporations and capitalists making profits. So that when they do fight back, it, the the punch hits that much harder. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing is that, as you know very well, because I'm about to put up a figure from one of your pieces. Uh, so much of employment across Latin America is informal work, uh, meaning it's um, not the the standard contract between a worker and a boss that, uh, you know, maybe it's, it's more typical, although becoming a little bit less so in the global north. Um, but uh, across the, the continent, um, you have these very high levels uh, of workers who are it's um, some form of part-time work or it's like what we know is gig work. Um, uh, you know, it might just be kind of making ends meet in their particular communities. Um, and I mean, one of the things that's obviously very shocking about uh, this graphic, um, which is actually from a different piece that you wrote um, is kind of how flat so many of these lines are across yeah. the continent, despite the amount of political change that's happened uh, over the last several decades Um, but at the very bottom, uh, with those, uh, triangles is Chile, that Chile, um, has among the lowest, uh, levels of informality or informal work rather, uh, on the continent. And so thinking ahead of, you know, um, you know, the outcome of the plebiscite of a left, uh, you know, being renewed in Chile, or across the continent, I mean, there's massive uh, transformations happening across the continent right now. Um, How should we understand the actual social base of a left-wing project going forward? And to what extent does that kind of give us indicators of how successful uh, these efforts might end up being?
2: Yeah, to me, this is the, the key question, right, for the future, not just of the left in Latin America, but for politics and development more generally in in the region. This, in my opinion, is the the core um, handicap of the left right now in the region, that its key constituencies, right, um, that it relies on, that it mobilizes, or that mobilize, um, you know, on their own, have come from the most peripheral, most marginal sections of the working class mainly the informal sector, right. And in, for instance, in the pink tide countries, those left governments that emerged in the um, early 2000s into the mid 2000s, right, their main bases of support were informal sector workers and communities, right. And they did propel them to power and they did bring down old government, uh, you know, um, neoliberal governments, right. The problem as you pointed out, Kale, is that while they might be able to forge new organizations and coordinate fairly massive mobilizations, they lack the kind of leverage that the old constituencies of the left used to have, in which they used to deploy, right, in order to really put a strain on the system, right, to really, really impose costly disruptions on the system. and that what you know what we call structural leverage was rooted in their position in the industries that elites valued the most well if your backers now are working in foods on you know food stands or somehow you know in gigs freelancing from day to day right first of all they're not working in industries that if they somehow find ways to disrupt them will really hit elite interests hard you know if you decide one day not to show up to your sandwich stand, elites aren't going to really care. It's not imposing, um, you know, cost on them. And on top of that, this is the most atomized, the most scattered, right? Um, These are the most atomized, the most scattered portions of the working class. You're working on your own, getting by on your own. It's a hyper-competitive environment just to survive. So it's hard to, you know... um, forge these bonds with like-minded um people and 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 communities, right? And come together um, um around a shared project. And this is the challenge that the left in Latin America and I guess the world over has to somehow overcome. Um, the left shouldn't reject, of course, right, the um involvement, participation of informal workers especially if they're rebelling. I mean, how would we reject that? That's what happened in Chile in in October 2019, right? It accomplished quite a bit. But we have to go beyond that and find ways to organize sectors of the working class um, that do, because of where they work, the sectors they work in their job sites, have this built-in ability to disrupt um, elites and and their their profits and their interests, right? The the figures that you showed there um, in terms of uh, the Chilean scenario um, are a bit um, too optimistic later on in that very, very long um, (laughs) essay. I show that more accurately, about 40 percent of Chileans, 40 to 45 percent toil in the informal sector. Right. Um, And that means that. Um, You know, most of Chilean workers are scattered throughout society and the economy. And we have to find, you know, branches of industry, geographic locations, right, where there are larger concentrations of workers, right, who work in key nodes of the economy, where if they stop working, right, they can really, really hit um, business profits, hard. And I think Chile does um, offer some promising prospects. You know, um, along with the rise of mass protest, um, this renewed cycle of mobilization that started around 2010, right, there has also been a revitalized labor insurgency. It's been patchy, uneven, right? But thankfully, It's also happened in key sectors of the Chilean economy, in mining, for instance. Chile is a country that continues to depend on natural resources, primarily on on copper and copper exports, right? Well, there has been some organizing, new organizing and rebellions in in copper since then. Um, In the ports, I mean, after you dig up the mineral, the copper, you've got to ship them to ports and from there transport them out to the world, to China, the U.S., what have you. Right? Well, there have been very, very powerful dock worker um, campaigns, organizing campaigns and strikes um, over the last five or six years. Right. And so what I think the new left, the new partisan left, and and thankfully it is consolidating itself, it has established itself in this new alliance between the communists and the front amplifier. What it has to do is find ways to go beyond. The layers it already works with, students, you know, uh, impoverished professionals or whatever you want to call them, middle class urban sectors, um, and find ways to connect to these newly rebelling um, working class sectors that have this kind of structural leverage. One of the implications of that is that, you know, when it comes to, for instance, thinking about the role that these independents, both the independent delegates in the constituent assemblies and these independent, autonomous horizontalist more you know, um, networks and movements on the ground, when it comes to thinking of the role they'll play, right? We have to we have to really pose this question and think about it hard. Are they the sectors that are going to get us over the hump? Surely they have a lot to contribute. But as you mentioned earlier, Kale. Do these middle-class women who, again, they've been great in mobilizing this way, right? Millions of people on on the street, and they can paralyze the capital in a day. Or do these retired workers who are just barely scraping by, no longer working in industry, by definition, they're retired, right? But they mobilize a million, a million and a half people in their biggest demonstrations as well, right? Right. Will these be the sectors that will really be able to confront any resistance by the old neoliberal elites, right? When it comes to legislating universalist reforms, like, you know, a public health care system, like real public universal education for all, including for the children of the poor, et cetera, et cetera. Will they be the ones that will be able to, um, you know, band with us and push that through? We'll have to see. What we do know is that if this this new partisan left, which, again, is strong in one sense, it has occupied some institutional positions, and that's really important, but is weak in another sense. It lacks these deeply rooted constituencies, right, in the working class. Will they be able to really push hard and face the resistance of both the concertación, um, neoliberal elites, and, this, and the uh, you know, new right, by the way, I say new right, because the right is reinventing itself right now, trying to, you know, mm-hmm. will they be able to without relying on that um, structural power um, of these newly rebelling um, sectors of the working class? Um, I, I, I'm pretty skeptical about it.
1: Right. It's it's kind of the, uh, the double bind that we have in the U.S. as well right now, where it's, uh, to revitalize the left, you probably need something like an industrial policy. And in order to implement an industrial policy, you probably need to have the left in power. Uh, and so it's the same thing in the US here we've been talking about with like the PRO Act. Yeah. Of to pass the PRO Act, you would probably need to have a revitalized labor movement. To have a revitalized labor movement, you probably need to like rip apart so much of the draconian labor law uh, that we have in the books right now. Yeah, no,
2: But but again, you know, the difference is, we want a constituent assembly, <laughs> you know. We mm-hmm. so that can be um, written into the new constitution, right? Labor mm-hmm. rights. Chile is so backward when it comes to, and so pro employer when it comes to labor legislation and, and and labor law, right? Well, this is why winning the plebiscite, winning the assembly, electing a new leftism really really matters because precisely because, you know, we can now um, shift the balance, as it were, at in, in workplaces in ways that allow uh, rebelling workers to organize much more effectively and then deploy, right, this potential um, power that, that they have. Um, it's going to be tough, right, but it's yeah. on the agenda for the first time in, in you know, over in, in about 50 years.
0: Oh. All right. Well, Rene Rojas, thank you so much for joining us. This was fascinating. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to find windows of opportunity for the left around the world. These days, this certainly seems like a very big one. Um, and we'll definitely be watching it as, as it unfolds. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you guys. It's good, good talking time. to you.
1: Thanks Renee. Wonderful. Chile dude. Yeah. It's uh yeah, like i said at the, the top i mean just like the contrast between like what we deal with with just like kind of yeah. the horrific like woke middle class like politics driving everything in the u.s it seems uh and then like this massive transformation of the country that like is actually coming from you know working people people from below mm-hmm. uh it's yeah it's optimistic at least
0: yeah no, it is. I mean, it's you know, Chile is an interesting place. Um, I think it's the Chile is the most unequal country in the OECD. I remember hearing mm. that stat for a long time when mm. people were like, "That was like the repose to like, oh look at Chile, it's amazing, you know, like look, mm. everything works." Um, and the president himself is a billionaire. So Asamblea is a is a billionaire. Like I, this is what I like. I'm like kind of looking to see is like, you know, how is the the you know the one percent class they're not going to like just take this lying down. Like they're going to do something, you know, right. there's going to be some sort of counterattack. Um, so it'll be interesting to see. I mean, we got uh, the Chilean constitution um, process. We got the Brazilian elections uh, mm-hmm. coming up. That was, it's going to, it's an interesting times in, in Latin America. <laughs> Fun times. Um, times. baby.
1: This would be typically where I would, come on screen for the first time to uh do super chat questions with you our lovely audience but uh we're not live uh i don't know if we said that at the top we didn't um no (laughs) um we're not live so we can't actually take your super chat questions but uh you should still send them if you can um and um uh i'll
0: answer them via email like noam chomsky that's
1: right (laughs) we'll do that um but uh, we, could, we could ask, I could just assume the questions you're sending us right now, um, again, I can't actually see them. It's, you're in the future and I'm not.
0: Yeah, pre-tape call-in show. You're doing the bit. I know you're doing the bit.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I wish. We should, we should do some more tape call-in bits.
0: Maybe we should do a, maybe we should do a call-in feature, uh, you know, but like people can send like voice notes and we can answer their questions. That'd be kind of fun
1: all right let's do it send um send them to editor at jacobinmag.com there you uh, go send your voice notes yeah send send some voicemails we'll we'll answer them speaking
0: of latin america latin americans be loving voice notes you know they're whatsapp and voice notes to each other all day it's like this weird thing you know it doesn't americans don't do it um just, but Latin lot americans like they're just like in, in whatsapp chats just sending voice notes to each other all day <laughs> they're just
1: they're an advanced people they get it that's true yeah. <laughs>
0: alrighty um, well should we wrap young kale
1: yeah I think we should I don't that's a good questions. place to
0: wrap yeah well, we don't have we don't have any questions <laughs> we're in the past <laughs>
1: yeah yeah All right. how's your dog I guess that's the I'm assuming someone should send us a super chat question asking how Nando's dog is doing so dog is
0: great okay dog is lovely I love the dog dog's right. the light of my life wonderful <laughs> All right. thanks for that question <laughs> person in the future uh, all right guys uh well have a good memorial day weekend um, you know i guess it's for the troops memorial day is for the troops right um hmm. yes i think it is yeah, yeah. We're, just, we're such classic lefties we don't even know um yeah happy memorial day enjoy your hot dogs enjoy your burgers uh go to the don't beach get too drunk go to the beach you know enjoy the sunshine it's beautiful here in california um i don't know how it is over there kale but uh, it's horrible it's beautiful here it's horrible okay great <laughs> um happy memorial day and uh see you next weekend bye everyone